Daniel chapter 4. We'll pick up in verse 27. We'll finish chapter 4 tonight. The second half of the confession to the king. Remind yourself again that this account is written functionally, if you look at it grammatically, by King Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so this is his personal story. He's writing about his own experience. And we're going to see all kinds of things that are uh, very easy for us to apply as we're sharing our faith with other people and also how God works in a general sense uh, in this world as he's reaching people who are lost. You might even say that this is kind of a how to witness 101 thing. And we see first and foremost, if you notice in verse 27, it's a picture of something that we don't like to, to teach on much. We don't even like to say it. It's almost like the word repent has gotten a bad rap someplace. And it's as if we can strike that from our vocabulary when in fact scripture is very clear that without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sin. And without forgiveness of sin, there is no salvation. You have to repent of your sin. You you can't just keep your sin. You can't keep going the same direction you were going before and expect, expect God to bless your sin. He has always required exactly what we find here in verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my advice be to you. Break off your sins by being righteous. That is a classic definition of repentance. It it is absolutely essential that we remind people that they cannot continue in the sin any longer. It's the very same thing that Jesus told uh, the woman caught in the act of adultery. He, He didn't say, go and sin some more. He said, go and sin no more. Amen? He didn't say keep it, he said get rid of it. He said forsake it, uh, leave it behind. And so tonight we're going to kind of pick up the remainder of the story and the first thing that we see is something that you should never encourage anybody to do. do. And that's to procrastinate when the Lord speaks into your life. And so let's pick up uh, here in verse 27. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the power of your word and we pray that you would minister to us by it. Uh, We pray that we'd be instructed from heaven. Uh, Fill us with your spirit so that we can receive from you. Anoint our minds, wash away the things of the afternoon uh, so that we can focus and learn of you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to do that so that hopefully I won't cough anymore. And so it says, therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. And so Daniel's writing, he's interjecting. Uh, into this story, break off your sins by being righteous. In other words, do exactly the opposite thing and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. It's very clear that this is saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to change course. You've done exactly the opposite of these things. It's time for you to turn around and go the other way. And perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. You know, it's it's another one of those issues that we don't like to talk about. But God blesses those who bless him. And it's not that we want to bless God so that we will be blessed by God. But the simple fact of the matter is, if you want to be blessed by God, you need to be a blessing to God. That's the short path. That's that's the way that is the quickest to the blessings of God. Now, God, because he is good, 
blesses providentially the entire world. He does good things to evil people and he allows bad things to happen to good people. So we, we can't make the direct correlation if I do this for God, then he'll do this for me. But the fact of the matter is the Bible clearly teaches that God blesses those who bless him. That if we want his best, we should be giving him our best. That if we desire to have the things that God wants for us, then we should give God all of who we are so that he can use who we are for his glory. And that is a path to blessing. And so that's reiterated uh, here in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking about in the royal palace of Babylon. And so the king gets a very specific message and that message is repent. That message is hear the voice of God and do what God says. And, and as I was studying this afternoon, I was kind of looking over this passage, just kind of reminding myself. I think one of the things that pops into my head, and I shared a little bit of it this morning, and, and it's really this, this picture that we see in the life of Jonah. And there's another one in the life of Jeremiah that we'll get to in a second. But it's one thing to know what God is saying. And yet another to do what he's asking. You, you can hear the voice of the Lord and you can choose to go the opposite direction. You can actually know that God actually has the power to do things and end up being afraid of what God is going to do, specifically when it involves your enemies. When there's someone involved that you might look at their life and go, you know, I'd kind of like for God to just take you out. You, you, you may have a few of those people in your life. I think we all have people. It's like it's very hard to pray for certain people that God would bless them, isn't it? And it's very tough at times to even talk about people groups. I, I was reading a little bit of the story of our, our military yesterday afternoon and in essence cornering this the leader of, of ISIS, Makar al-Baghdadi, and and. And while I don't want to politicize this, I do want to draw attention to something. This man thought it would be a good idea to go inside of a tunnel with three children and blow himself and those children up. It is hard for me to pray for people like that. I'm just being honest. That's the type of person that's like, goodbye, good riddance, see you later. You got, but don't take out the kids. It is hard at times, and we have people in our lives where it is difficult to even pray that they would repent. And, and that is the issue that Jonah had. And it says there in Jonah chapter four and verse two, speaking of God, I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and a God who relents from sending calamity. And I think when you look at Nebuchadnezzar, you might kind of wonder to yourself, it must have been difficult for Daniel to pray for King Nebuchadnezzar to get saved, for there to be a, a witness in his life. This is the man that just tossed his friends into the fiery furnace, amen? So your natural response isn't gonna be, could you save him? Your natural response is, maybe he could fry himself. And this brings to light something I think we need to remember. God is unwilling that any should perish, including the Ninevites, 
Nebuchadnezzar, and he was even unwilling that Bakar el-Baghdadi should perish, and especially those kids. God wants all to come to repentance. And, and so while they may not receive that message and they may not act on that message, it nonetheless doesn't change the character of God. God wants people to repent. And so he offers repentance. He, he, gives, a, he gives the opportunity for us to do that. And, and so what's happening when he does that is that he gives that opportunity so that you and I and everyone else can uh, not only repent of those things, but so that he will relent because there's some other things that are going to come if you don't repent. God's word is very, very, very clear on these things. And so God is speaking into Nebuchadnezzar's life in a way that I think we need to kind of acknowledge that God still speaks into people's lives today. And to that end, if you flip over a few pages of Jeremiah chapter 18, I want to pick up in verse 5 there in a short six verses. But Jeremiah is speaking. Remember, he's writing from captivity, uh, the children of Israel in Babylon again. And then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so you in my so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. God has everyone in his hand. We are the clay, he is the potter. And the instant I speak concerning a nation, now check this out, concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. Now notice he doesn't say if that nation is a Christian nation, or if that nation is a good nation, or if that nation is filled with godly people or ungodly people, he's, he's making a general statement. He says, when people listen and they repent, I will relent. I'll, I'll turn away from what I intended to do. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to build it, to plant it. If it does evil in my sight, so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. So God here is giving us a picture that when he speaks, he expects us to listen. And if we want the good that he wants for us, we better do things his way. Otherwise, we're going to get what he intends to give us if we're doing evil. And that is not good things. And so it comes into view for us in the life of Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar had an opportunity here. And Daniel explained it to him. You need to repent, O king. You need to turn away from the evil that you're doing and you need to turn towards the Lord. He's going to wait 12 months before making that decision. Can I tell you that's a bad idea? When God gives you an opportunity to turn away from something, it's an instantaneous opportunity and that opportunity may not be there later. God doesn't guarantee that he's going to be, you know, forever allowing us opportunities to turn without there being a very extreme consequence to it. 
And so he's giving us a picture here, kind of how he works in a general sense in the world. And so he's picturing for us what is said here, break off your sins. And it actually says by way of or by righteousness. In other words, take and not do what you used to do and do what you should do, which is righteousness. Now he's, he's painting this picture of how we come to faith in Christ in the first place. And without repentance, there is no salvation. Let me be really clear on that. Your faith is manifest in your life by good works. It's by turning away from those things. It doesn't mean you're saved by turning away. But when you are saved, you will turn away. You will repent. You'll, you'll say, God, you're right. I'm wrong. Nebuchadnezzar was having a tough time doing that. Remember, he is the king of the most powerful kingdom on the planet Earth. Uh, he is a powerful person like none other at that period of time. One could say that if there was a world ruler, he was it. And so he's not likely to want to repent. He's not likely to turn away from these things that have plagued his life. He's got it pretty good, amen? He can do whatever he wants. He's just caused the entire kingdom to bow down to him. He's built this gigantic statue of himself. That dream has been interpreted. So he's kind of thinking, maybe I can just kind of skate around this whole issue of repentance. Maybe I don't actually need to turn away. He's thinking, maybe there's some other way. There is no other way in the life of any person who's ever lived than turning from sin. We have to do that. It's part of the package deal of grace. Grace, is, grace necessitates us agreeing with God and saying, God, I'm wrong. I know I'm a sinner. I'm turning from my sin. I'm repenting from those things. I'm not going to do them anymore. Thank you for forgiving my sin. God is not in the business of forgiving something that we refuse to turn from the consequences of that type of sin will hound you indefinitely until you turn from the sin god's fundamentals don't change he, his character doesn't change he doesn't wander around going, well you know i think well they think about that sin differently than they used to so i'm okay with it now no he's not okay with it now if god was not okay with some moral edict that he made in times past he's still not okay with it that's why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 reminds us as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And he goes on to say, for in time of my favor I heard you, in the day of salvation I helped you, and I tell you now, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. He's reminding all of us in that sense, just as he does with Nebuchadnezzar, look, the offer is open right now, take it. Don't procrastinate. But you've got to repent. You've got to turn. And so God's patience with Nebuchadnezzar is about to come to an end for a period of time. He's going to go on this little journey. And it kind of points us towards people probably that you know. I know some that I know. It's just like, well, you know, uh, maybe I'll turn to the Lord later when I get older and I, I can't sin very well anymore. Uh, you know, right now I'm kind of, you know, I'm not so sure I really want to want to do that. You know, I kind of like my life the way it is. And it points to the second part of this, which is the king's pride, and then ultimately what happens to him, which is kind of a perversion of his mind. In verse 30, and the king spoke, saying, again, this is King Nebuchadnezzar himself, is not this great Babylon? 
that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? So now you can see, previously he's, he's acknowledged who Daniel's God is. He's acknowledged that that God is great. We're going to look at all these things cumulatively towards the end of the study tonight. And now he's kind of going back to his pride. And pride is one of those things that God has forever in a day said he hates. And while the word was still in the king's mouth, the voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. There are some very, very powerful lessons about humanity in this particular chapter, and we'll kind of look at them collectively as well here in just a little bit. And that very hour, the word was filled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like the claws of birds. Now, humanly perspective, from a human perspective, Nebuchadnezzar had every reason to brag, amen? Every reason to be prideful. Uh, he, he, lived, he lived the high life. He had built the city of Babylon, famous for its hanging gardens, the temple of Marduk, these structures that were unparalleled in the ancient world. You know, he, was a, he was a big deal. All of it had been done for a singular reason, though, and that was his own personal majesty, his own personal glory, his own personal pride. And so we, we have what happens when you start to live that way happen to King Nebuchadnezzar because God loves us. He, he has a tendency to, to work in our lives by tearing down our little man-made kingdoms, doesn't he? Anybody experienced in your life something that you once held dear, something that you cling to, something you thought was your identity that God had to remove from your life to get you to see that you were worshiping your own little world instead of him? For some people, that's business or career. It can be our minds. It can be education. It can be relationships. It can be your bank account. There's all kinds of things that we can set in place to begin to worship that becomes our own little kingdom and we become the king of our own little kingdom. And very often, God will take those things out of our lives and put us back in a place where we are no longer the king of any kingdom. We're eating grass in the field like an ox, metaphorically speaking, of course. Or actually, it might even be literal. In this particular issue which is going on with King Nebuchadnezzar, it actually has a clinical name, and if it happened to be that you were kind of, you know, thinking that maybe you were a wolf, it'd be lycanthropy, or it could be boanthropy, which just means that you kind of perceive yourself to be an animal, and you live like that. And you go out in the field, and you munch on grass, but it, it, is, it is, God can allow things to happen to our minds that cause us to come to our senses, you know, after a while, as, as King Nebuchadnezzar, who used to be the most powerful man in the world, is out in a field someplace covered with 
hair that looks like feathers and claws like a bird and he's munching on grass, I think after a while he's going to kind of maybe wake up and go, you know, this isn't really a great idea. This is not what I had mapped out for my life. And God does the same thing in our life. Now, it may not be that extreme, but this is not the first time that something like this has happened. It's actually fairly well documented. Um, we were just, just in Europe and we were traveling around and, and one of the things that, that uh, in the region of Bavaria, specifically in Garmisch and Parktenkirchen, you, you've probably seen it, the Neuschwanstein Castle, which is, uh, we call it Disneyland's, you know, the, the thing that looks like Disneyland, but um, it's actually a castle of Mad King Ludwig. It actually is one of the things that his brother Otto suffered from was this same malady. He actually believed for a long time that he was, a, he was an animal. And, and so he would just kind of wander out and he for a while thought he was a wolf and he thought he was a cow and there were all kinds of crazy things. You know, your mind can become so self-absorbed that, that ultimately you, you start worshiping yourself and sometimes God's got to go to extreme measures to get, your, get you to come to your senses. This particular malady was actually documented in, in a number of ancient sources. Um, Berosaurus, which is a Babylonian priest from the 3rd century BC, recorded on a tablet Nebuchadnezzar's uh, sickness. Eusebius records the same thing. And then, interestingly enough, uh, Sir Henry Ralston, when he uh, discovered these Babylonian tablets are damaged uh, in, in his search for the great King Nebuchadnezzar, actually found a passage where it was written about Nebuchadnezzar from his time that he spent at least four years not governing his own country, his, his own uh, kingdom, if you will. And so this is a true event. This is something that actually happened and is documented in, in somewhere in places other than the Bible itself. And so it seems as though the Lord just simply allowed Nebuchadnezzar uh, this time, this journey away and gave him a sense, look, I'm actually in charge here. The only one that can fix this problem is me. Now for you, maybe you're not going to have to go munch on grass and act like an oxen for seven years. But maybe you might have to lose your job. Perhaps you might need to get into a financial situation that you can't fix yourself. Maybe that relationship is, needs to crumble. There, there may be something in your life to where you have, in essence, set up your own little kingdom and you are the king or the queen of it. And the Lord just simply says, mm, no, that's not how this works. I'm still in charge. And I'm gonna prove it to you. Because right now you're just worshiping yourself. And by the way, the Lord did the very same thing to Saul. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. God actually placed in King Saul a spirit that he wasn't happy to, happy to have. And the, the word to us is be careful about the corners that you push God into. When you begin to worship yourself, when you begin to become self-absorbed, if you get into that place of pride, you, you can almost count on the fact that God is going to give you some kind of circumstance in it to where you will find need for him. 
the good news is, the next thing we see is the preservation of the king. Verse 34, at the end of the time, so Nebuchadnezzar was promised it for seven years, for seven cycles of years, he would be out in the field munching on grass. I, King Nebuchadnezzar, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to the heaven, and my understanding returned to me. So he went from being either possessed demonically or believing himself, in essence, being uh, what we would call uh, mentally deficient or possibly even clinically insane. We don't know, but he was absolutely not in his right mind. His understanding returned to him. Now, I want you to notice his response because this is a classical definition of someone who's repentant. I praised and honored him who lives forever. I I realized I came to my senses and I realized that God is God. He trusted him for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation for all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at the same time, my reason returned to me for the glory of my kingdom, my honor, the splendor returned to me and my counselors and nobles resorted to me and I was restored to my kingdom and an excellent majesty was added to me. Now here's a good thing. And this is exactly the story of Job. If you remember, Job's life is turned upside down. God gives Satan permission to test him. His entire life is, is destroyed effectively, but his life was also restored to him tenfold. And it appears to be the same is true with Nebuchadnezzar. In, in the right understanding of who God is, then God adds back to us how the years that the moths have eaten, the rust has corroded. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth, his ways, justice, and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. It's an incredible proclamation of personal faith in God. Nebuchadnezzar learned a lesson. He learned a lesson that Job had learned. And Nebuchadnezzar is kind of in a place that's very unique if you look at it in human history. Because there are very few monarchs that could actually say they had a true monarchy. And Nebuchadnezzar is one of those guys. And so he basically comes to, comes to this place. It's either him or God. It's either Nebuchadnezzar is God or God is God. And fortunately, Nebuchadnezzar turns to the true and the living God. And that is ultimately where every human being has to come. That's the place we all have to go to. I have to either say, God, you're right. You're God. I'm not. I trust you. I no longer trust in myself. I'm trusting you. Or I have to continue trusting in myself. And if you continue trusting in yourself, then you're stuck with you. And Nebuchadnezzar comes as a, one who's poor in spirit. He comes as someone who's humble. He, he, he becomes, I believe, a citizen of heaven. And God absolutely changes his heart. And this is a new song that's in his mouth. Amen? He's no longer praising himself. He's praising God. 
He's no longer looking at his life saying, man, I'm the best thing that ever happened to this earth. He's saying, God, you who are in heaven is the best thing that's ever happened to this earth. And in that sense, there's actually seven blessings, and you can see them fairly easily, uh, that happen as, as these things are restored to Nebuchadnezzar. First thing is understanding returned. He, he had been one of those men that thought he knew everything, and if he didn't know it himself, remember what he did. He went and found the best and the brightest. And they would tell him whatever it is he needed to know. And he lost that capacity, but God returned it to him. His own personal reasoning returned. He, he was able to, to think and reason again. Not only did he have all the information he needed previously, which he lost, he also lost the capacity to even think correctly. The glory of his own personal kingdom is actually restored. It's really interesting. Once you start to live for the Lord, God sometimes will give you back the things that you used to have because now you know how to use them correctly for his kingdom. I've talked to an awful lot of people that have watched their businesses return, you know, their financial wherewithal return because they've turned to the Lord and said, Lord, it's all yours. You can have it. You can do whatever you want. And because it's his, God gives it back to them because God can use it in their hands. But we withhold from God, then God sometimes withhold, withholds from us because we're not using it the way God wants us to, so he just simply removes it from us. The king's honor, his own personal majesty in that sense, actually returns. His, his advisors, his nobles, begin to seek him out again. I, I'm pretty sure none of them were following him around the field while he was munching on grass, going, hey, king, what's up? But now he, he's back in the throne room again and people are coming to see him and talk to him again. He's actually reestablished as the king of his, of his kingdom. This kind of gives us a picture and all this happened in 562 BC. It's fairly well recorded in non-biblical documents as well. But there's a progression in how uh, Nebuchadnezzar actually understands God. And it's been happening throughout this entire chapter, actually a, a little bit, of uh, chapter three as well. But God actually gives him a little more than he had before. The very same thing that happened in Job's life. And so you can kind of see some things how the king now recognizes who the God of Daniel actually is. In chapter two, he finds out that he's the revealer of all things. In chapter three, in verse 28, he realizes that Daniel's God is the deliverer. Not a deliverer, the deliverer. And here in chapter four, three more things. That Daniel's God has no beginning and has no end. He is the eternal God. That he is the uncreated cause. That, that he is the one who is in charge of everything. He sees him as the sovereign there in verse 35. In other words, not only does he know everything, not only does he create everything, but he's actually in charge of everything still. And, and Daniel's God can do whatever Daniel's God wants to do. Sometimes I think we treat God like he's no longer sovereign. You know, maybe he's got a little part of our life that he's sovereign over. We call it the spiritual part. But we're in charge of the rest of it. No, God's actually in charge of everything, everyone, everywhere. And then in verse 37, he, he says he's actually the king. 
And so by the time of, we get to the end of this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar, things that I could <clears throat> pick out anyway, there's about 21 different things that the, the king has learned about God through the witness of one man. Now think about that for a second. This is the most powerful person on the planet. It's the witness of one guy. That one guy could be killed by the king himself and yet his witness was so powerful that there's at least 21. These are things that I could pick out and I'm not even going to give you all 21 that I, I picked out. But the first thing that I saw was that praise and honor belongs to God alone. Daniel and his friends refused to bow. Praise and honor belong to God alone. That nobody else should be bowed down to. Nobody else is worthy of that praise or that honor. That was a costly thing to teach the king, but the king got it because of a bold witness. But God is actually the king of heaven and is the king of heaven that rules the earth. It is not the kingdom of men. Now God has allowed an awful lot of latitude for people on this planet to do whatever they want. He's given us free will. He's established governments and those governments do not always do what God wants. That's an absolute fact. But that doesn't mean that God has relinquished control. It doesn't mean that he's fallen off the throne in that sense. He still is the ruler of heaven and earth. Another thing, he just announced this, that all of God's works are truth. Now we live in a, in a day and time where it's almost impossible to get people to even ponder the word truth. When we say truth, it's like, well, what is truth? The very same thing that Pilate asked Jesus, if you remember, well, what is truth? And Jesus declared he is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. And so these things that, that Daniel was able to show the king collected in the king's psyche, the king's mind. They, they were stored up in there. I don't believe that in one particular instant, all of these things, like God is a revealer of mysteries. God is in the presence of those who trust him. That God can silence the boasting of men. That, that the Holy Spirit of God can actually dwell in a man. That sin doesn't pay. You see, all of those lessons could have been garnered by just simply watching and listening to Daniel. And I wonder sometimes when we're around people that don't know the Lord, what they come away with when they've been around us for a long period of time. What is it that they understand about God because they know you or they know me or they know us as a church? Do they know that pride is the cause of downfall? Do they know that when you walk in pride, God might just knock you down a peg or two? Do they know that God is interested in saving you, but you have to repent? That God's not wicked, he's not mean, he's not angry, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all, including King Nebuchadnezzar, should come to repentance? Do they know that there's only one true God? You see, all of these things, Nebuchadnezzar could have learned 
from one man, Daniel. One guy. And it kind of puts us into that place to where I think we can look at our own lives and go, you know, am I telling people everything they need to know that I know about God? Am I telling people that God is the true sovereign of the universe? Am I telling people that there is no God who can do miracles like our God? And the reason I'm saying this is you read this story, you can almost skip over it because it seems like it's a little far-fetched. It's like, really? You know, did, did King Nebuchadnezzar really wander out into a field someplace and for seven years eat grass? You know, what's all that about? It's about God revealing himself to man. And he allows stuff into our lives that we can't explain. And it's primarily for the purpose that he wants us to turn to him for the explanation. Amen? God rules this earth. And we would do well to remember that. And to walk boldly in that truth as we, as we share that truth with other people. Because if we don't believe it and we don't tell people that truth, who will? They're not going to get that from watching the National Geographic channel, I can tell you that. They're not going to go on the, you know, the Home and Garden TV network and find a show about God's sovereign nature. You know, maybe about redoing your bathroom, but... Definitely not that there's only one king in heaven and he rules the earth. And so that's the place that God has us. So while you may not be sharing your faith with, say, a senator or a congressman or our president or whomever, maybe it's not the most powerful people on the earth, you do have the same position that Daniel held in somebody's life. If you're a parent, it's definitely in your children's lives. What do your children know about God because of the way that you speak about God in your home? What what do your children think about God because of the glory that you give to God in your home? How is it that your family understands who God is because of the substantially different way that you live your life than they do and they don't know him? You understand the value of that testimony, that witness? You see, sometimes we condense witnessing down to sharing the four spiritual laws. We break it down to this, almost a speech we need to give people so that they can turn from their sin and be saved. But I would report to you that this particular chapter paints a very different picture. It says what's far more important is how you live your life so that your words actually matter so that when someone hears you speak, it's matched up by how you lived. That you refused to bow. Not that you said that you shouldn't bow and then bowed, but that you actually didn't bow to the false god. That as you talk about God, that you give him credit for who he actually is. Not just, well, yeah, I go to church. Very often I talk to people in, in a fairly scientific vein. It's like, no, I actually believe that God created the heavens and the earth. 
And I can give you scientific reasoning for why that is just as plausible, if not more plausible, than you believing in the Big Bang. I give God credit for doing what God did. I don't go, well, you know, I kind of keep my religion to myself. No, I loudly and proudly say, you know, I'm one of those crazy people, crazy people that actually believes God created the heavens and the earth. It is a far better scientific explanation to me then nothing became something and got very ordered, exploded, and then became even more ordered. You see, what do people understand about God? Because they've talked to you. They've watched you live your life. That is the witness that you have in this world. And I know that many of you share the, the things that God has done in your life and what you know about him constantly with everyone and, and praise God for you. But I think all of us can look at times in our lives where it's like, Lord, you know, I, I was in that situation. I had an opportunity for people to, to know where I stand about you, and I missed that opportunity. Don't let those opportunities pass you by. Because it could be that God is using you to put that king of that little kingdom, maybe it's the kingdom of one, into a place where they need to recognize what Nebuchadnezzar recognized here. Turn from your evil deeds and do righteousness. Repent, because there is a God who actually sees everything that you do. I'll leave you with a little bit of application of this passage tonight. And I think God's dealing with Nebuchadnezzar shows us a couple of things. God hates pride. God absolutely hates pride. It often changes the shape of of the type of person that we are. When you become self-absorbed, in essence, lover of self, the destructive results can be monumental in your life because that self-absorption causes you to be uh, tainted in the way that you relate to other people. And and for most Christians, it actually becomes, I think, a, a very serious sin issue. And I would remind you that it is that particular sin that was the downfall before he became known as Satan of Lucifer. He was an angel of light. And it was pride that put him in the position of being able to be self-deceived to where he said, you know, I'm going to become like the most high God. I'll be my own God. Matter of fact, I want my kingdom to be above your kingdom, God. And so be careful with pride. I believe it was pride that moved Cain and Abel to, to have the type of relationship that they did. It, it moved Cain to slay his brother. When you read the book of Proverbs, you can't help but look at the warnings. They're in chapter 6 and 8, 11, 13, 16, chapter 18. They all, they all speak of pride. It's like this issue of, of us exalting, in essence, our own selves above the Lord. And so I, I believe that that type of pride is really an abomination to the Lord. It's like we want to become our own little gods. It's really important for us to just kind of sit there and, and say, Lord, is there some area in my life where I'm actually my own God? Maybe it's not in totality, 
But maybe it's just some little area of our, of our life where it's just like, well, God, you rule everything but, and then name your little area. God wants to have his rightful place in the entirety of our existence while we're here. Everything that we are, all that we do, all that we say, it, he is supposed to be the ruler of it. He's supposed to have the, the loudest voice, the first voice. He should be the one that's able to speak by his Holy Spirit into those situations so that we are accomplishing his good purposes. And the thing that I see in this passage is that God will spare no expense in breaking pride. Now, that can do two things to you. That can either scare you to death because you know that there's a little situation that's in your life that that you're dealing with pride or it can cause you to have tremendous hope for people who are in that place, even though you yourself aren't. Because not only did God deal with Nebuchadnezzar, God was actually kind to Nebuchadnezzar in dealing with his pride. So it's not like God's trying to destroy us. He's trying to destroy the pride that's in us. And sometimes God has to use some extreme measures to do that. In Nebuchadnezzar's life, look what he uses. Sickness, disease, debilitation. He loses his mind. He's not able to even think correctly. But what I see is God going the the extra mile with Nebuchadnezzar. It actually encourages me. It's like, man, if somebody can be as crazy, wicked as he is, as messed up as he is, as out to lunch as he is, then God is still gracious and kind and merciful and tender and not willing that any should perish, exactly as 2 Peter 3, 9 says. He doesn't want anybody to perish, even the Nebuchadnezzars of the world. That gives me hope for me and you and everybody else. And as you, as you think about Nebuchadnezzar, it's like if you have a strong-willed person in your life who's, who's prone to just kind of saying, yeah, that's, for you. that's good for you, it's not good for me, there, there's some steps here in Nebuchadnezzar's conversion experience, if you will. Nebuchadnezzar started with a false sense of significance of self. Nebuchadnezzar had a false sense of security based on who he was. Nebuchadnezzar, even though he was himself against God, God was never against Nebuchadnezzar. God wasn't going to leave him the same, but he wasn't against him. God was so kind to Nebuchadnezzar that he gave him a warning. And this is where some of you come in. You are that warning to people. You're you're the Daniel in this story. You know that person that's flirting with this type of life and living, and you're the one that has the truth. The question is, are you going to be used to the Lord to speak that word of warning into that person's life? And at the same time, are you going to deliver the invitation to change, to repent, just as Daniel does? Because what happens in this story is there's some pretty disastrous events drastic things that have to happen in Nebuchadnezzar's life because he procrastinates. You can be used to the Lord to keep people from that place. You can speak into their life. It's like, look, man, today is a day of salvation for you. Don't delay. It's not a good thing. 
we see Nebuchadnezzar humbled by God. But then the beauty of all of this is as he turns from himself, as Nebuchadnezzar repents, as that change comes to his heart, it shows us that there's, there's, there really isn't a limit to how far wrong you can be provided you're willing to turn to the Lord. Now, it's a disastrous thing to flirt with that thought. But if God can cause Nebuchadnezzar to come to his senses and repent, then I don't know that there's too many people that are outside of that. Matter of fact, I would say that in a general sense, there's none. Because God is unwilling that anyone should perish. So God's grace is that big. It reaches out to people that you would go, man, that guy's a Ninevite. That person is a Bakr al-Baghdadi. That person is a Pol Pot or a Stalin. That person is a, you know, a Saddam Hussein. That person is some dictator. That, that person, you know, it's just there's no way God can save that person. Don't say that. Just be what they need to be and say what they need to hear so that they will know who God is. And then you leave the results in God's hands. You do your part. Let God do his. Your, your, your job, my job, our job really is to save no one. We don't save anybody. We provide the information that can cause someone to come to their senses so that they can see God for who he is. So that they can understand him the way that Nebuchadnezzar understands God after the actions of Daniel. I don't know, God, can you imagine when King Nebuchadnezzar, God loves me. Can you imagine the moment that that struck his mind? After all the things I've done, after everything I've said, after the crazy ways I've behaved, after this insane thing of me wandering around the hillsides eating grass for seven years, God loves me. He wants me to turn. And family, that's, that's really, while we're still here in these bodies of flesh, that's job one. That's actually why we're still here, is to give people the opportunity to hear the good news about their life, about their living. It's certainly, in, in, a, in a later sense, that's actually going to happen even to national Israel in, the, in this time. You know, I, I listen to people, it's like, well, you know, God's just done. No, he's not done. One day, because God said so, all Israel is going to repent. They're going to go through their fiery trial. They're going to have uh, that, that time where it looks like they're not going to survive it. They're, they're going to be in that place. The Bible describes it as the tribulation. It's, it's a, a picture that comes there from Revelation chapter 7. But as people share with them, you know, I, I can tell you something about traveling to Israel today. There are massive amounts of Christians in Israel every day. There's probably more Christians there than there are Jewish people there on a given day, just from all the tourists. But that hasn't caused Israel to repent yet. It hasn't caused them nationally to see Messiah and to recognize who he is, that he already came. 
But one day they're going to get that message. And God is patient with them. God's not willing that they perish. And so there is still a voice crying out to to those who have said, no, thanks, we don't really want him as our king. But that's that's how good God is. That's how great his grace is. And I pray that we see that in this passage, in this chapter. Just like one day all Israel will be saved, there's nobody in your life that can't be saved. The question is, are you going to share with them the good news so that they have the opportunity? It's what Daniel did. It's what we should do. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and we'll pray. We'll have some pastors up after service if you need some specific prayer need prayed for. Father, we thank you for the example of this amazing man, Daniel, or this man who was a prophet, but in so many ways he's like us. And Lord, we pray that we would have his boldness. Lord, that we'd be fearless in the way that we present you to this world. Lord, people are going to mock us and ridicule us. They're going to say all manner of things falsely against us for your namesake. And so, Lord, we just simply pray that we wouldn't be moved. That God, when people meet us, they would, they would walk away knowing that we serve the true and the living God. That there is only one way and only one truth. There's just that one life and no one comes to the Father but by you, Jesus. Lord, help us to present that truth in such a way that it is, it is without controversy uh, the thing that people remember about us. That we're just sold out for you. And so, God, we thank you for that boldness of Daniel. Pray that we would catch a little bit of it ourselves. That as we share our lives with others, that they would uh, see their need for you. That they repent of those things that are binding them. That they leave behind the pride and self-importance and reliance. And Lord, just turn to the king, who just like in the story of the prodigal son, is waiting in the road. Lord, waiting for us to turn around and come back home. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Pray that you bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.